Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. We're going to do something a little different this week. Anthony Bourdain, the chef and author and television personality, was found dead in his hotel room in Paris last week. I spoke with Bourdain over the phone last year for an interview that ran on Slate.com. He was actually in Paris at the time and was dating the actress Asia Argento, who had accused Harvey Weinstein of rape. Other people in the food world, including the New Orleans chef John Besh, had just been accused of sexual harassment, and Bourdain was clearly interested in reflecting on his own place in a food world that he said was often characterized by, quote, meathead culture. So I got in touch with his PR person and called him up, and we talked for a little over 20 minutes. Today on the show, we are going to run our entire conversation. Because it wasn't a podcast, I recorded it on an app on my phone, so the audio isn't quite as good as podcast listeners are used to. But we thought it would be worth airing, essentially unedited, minus a few technical things, because Bourdain spoke so passionately and, I thought, self-reflectively. He was clearly interested in examining his own bad boy image, which his book Kitchen Confidential, which came out almost two decades ago now, had done so much to instill in the mind of his readers. And he wanted to clearly try and understand exactly why some of the women in his life who had been mistreated by men were reluctant to confide in him. He also talks in this interview about the effect dating Argento had on his thinking. And at one point, he even mentions his friend Eric Riper, who was the chef who found Bourdain in his hotel room after the suicide. Anyway, I think it's a really interesting conversation. I get to interview a lot of people in this job, and generally, the more famous they are, the less self-reflective and open they tend to be. That obviously wasn't the case with him. I find I can usually tell, not always, but usually, when someone is really listening to my questions and trying to answer them and think about them. And I remember telling my editor as soon as I got off this call with Bourdain how open I thought he was. And I think when you read a lot of the testimonials about him over the past week, you see his friends and acquaintances and colleagues talking about all these qualities of his. Anyway, here's the conversation. I'm sorry about the audio, but I hope you'll give it a listen. Uh, okay, great recording. Uh, thanks for talking to me. Um, should I put anything in the intro about bio, you know, bio stuff about anything you're doing now you want me to mention? No, 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 no. Um, so I wanted to talk to you for a couple of reasons, uh, just cause I'd been watching your tweets about, uh, Weinstein and then, and then Besh. Um, what, what, what is it about, um, what is it that, that, it's gotten you so passionate about this and specifically what is it about restaurant and food culture that you think maybe needs to change? Okay. Well, I mean, look, obviously, um, you know, I've been seeing up close, you know, due to a personal relationship, um, the difficulty of speaking out about these things, uh, the kind of, uh, vilification and humiliation and risk and pain and terror that comes with um, speaking out about this kind of thing. So that certainly brought it home in a personal way that it, it to my discredit, might not have had before. Um, you know, so there's that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. angry and I've seen it up close and I've been hearing uh, firsthand from a lot of women, 
Um, also, I guess, you know, I, I, I'm looking back on my own life. I'm looking back on my own career. Um, before, you know, for all these years, um, women did not speak to me. I mean, I've been out of the restaurant business for 17, 18 years. I'm really not in the mix. Just the same. Other than one, uh, other than one uh, a woman chef, a uh, restaurant to a friend from Canada, nobody has really been speaking to me about this until recently. And I guess because of the Weinstein case, I'm starting to hear from a lot of women personal stories. And what I'm sort of things myself, are you hearing? Yeah. I'm not, I'm, I mean, I mean, people are speaking to me in confidence of things that I really don't want to go into. Just personal stories, things they've heard, things that have happened to them. But I had to ask myself, particularly given some of the things I'm hearing and about and the people I'm hearing them about. Why, why was I not the sort of person or why was I not seen as the sort of person that these women could feel comfortable confiding in? You know, I see this as a personal failing. Um, you know, I've been hearing, hearing a lot of really bad shit, frankly. And in many cases, it's like, wow, you know, I've, I've known some of these women, and I know women who have stories like this clearly for years, and they've said nothing to me. What is wrong with me? What have I, uh, what have I, how have I resented myself in such a way as to not give confidence? Or uh, why was I not the sort of person people would see as a natural ally here? So I started looking at that. And what do you think? And I've also I mean, been thinking, look, I've been thinking very much about Kitchen Confidential. Um, yeah. You know, I, to what extent, to what extent did, did, did my book, uh, you know, now the events in the book may have taken place years before I even wrote it. But the fact is, I have seen, for instance, I go to, I go to, I would go to, uh, signings a few years after Kitchen Confidential came out. And people would come up to me mostly guys, they'd high-five me at the table with one hand and slide me a packet of cocaine with the other. And it was like, dude, have you not read the book? I mean, what the fuck this is like wrong Wall with you? This is, like I'm a, I'm a, I'm from, this is like people coming up to Michael Douglas and saying greed is good unironically. That's what that story reminds me. Uh, so look, I've had to ask myself, and I have been for some time, to what extent did that book, did I provide validation to, you know, meatheads. Um, and that's something I've been looking at and thinking about a lot. Um, even though I don't think that's what you intended with the book, right? I mean, that's not, that's no, why I, I, mean, I, I think, thing. look, I think it's a, look, if you, if you read the book, there's a lot of bad language. There's a lot of sexualization of food. Uh, there's, but I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't recall any, you know, leeringly uh, or uh, particularly, uh, uh, what's the word, a prurient interest in the book. Right. Um, other than first scene as a young man, you know, watching my chef at a, you know, very happily consensual uh, uh, encounter uh, with a client. Um, other than that, I mean, but still, you know, that broke culture, that meathead culture, that, that, you know, when I arrived in the restaurant business, it was, it's no excuse, but I mean, I arrived at a time in the early 70s with the waning days of the sexual revolution. Uh, I was in Provincetown, Massachusetts, which was a largely gay, very sexually free, libertine-esque environment. 
I was coming out of a mostly women's uh, university where men were a tiny minority. I found myself in an environment where men and women spoke, and uh, gay men, uh, gay women, straight men, straight women. We all spoke in, uh, uh, people were speaking around me, mostly older, more experienced, in incredibly frank ways, uh, usually self-deprecatingly about their, their sex lives, what they liked, what they didn't like, how they fucked up, how their, their failures. I found it very liberating and refreshing that people could talk to themselves in this way, talk to each other in this way. It seems honest and, and free of the kind of hypocrisy and stupidity that I'd seen surrounding sex for, you know, growing up. But of course, as in any seemingly, seemingly utopian environment, you know, like whether it's San Francisco in the, in the sixties or, uh, any place else, the meatheads arrive and they see this freedom as a means to be shitheads. Well, wait, so can I I ask just to go back to what you said at the beginning, just because it begs the obvious question, which is that you've kind of been looking at this and what was it about your personality that women didn't want to, or what was it about you that women didn't want to come up and say, hey, so what, you know, this is what happened to me or this is what's going on. I mean, what is it that you think? I mean, do you think it's, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think it's something about who you are? Do you think it's something about men and food culture generally that no men were hearing this stuff? Or do you think it's some aspect of your personality, I guess? Look, I never wanted to be part of bro culture. You know, right. I was always embarrassed if, if I ever found myself, and I mean going way back, if I ever found myself with a group of guys and they started leering at women or, or making, you know, like, hey, look at her, you know, nice, you know, I was always, I always felt uncomfortable. Okay? That, that just felt, it wasn't an ethical thing. It was yeah. a, it, I, I felt uncomfortable and ashamed to be a man, and I felt that everybody involved in this equation was demeaned by the experience. I was demeaned by standing there and experience like this. They were demeaned for behaving like this. It was, I, I just, uh, it, it's like sitting at a table with somebody who's rude to a waiter. I don't want to be with someone like that. But, um, I, look, I, 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 I accepted. Uh, when the book came out, I was the bad boy, right? People accused me or, you know, there I was in the leather jacket and the cigarettes. And I all too happily played that role or went along with it. You know, shit was good. Um, people said a lot of, you know, uh, silly things about me. I mean, you know, if anyone, anyone's ever known me who, you know, people actually would use the word macho around me. And this was such a mortifying accusation that I didn't even understand it. You know, to the extent that I was that guy, however, however fast and however hard I tried to get away with with it, the fact is that's what my persona was. Um, you know, I'm a guy on TV who sexualizes food, who uses bad language, um, who thinks our discomfort, uh, our, our squeamishness, fear, and discomfort around matters sexual is, is funny. Um, I have some stupid defensive shit. So just look, and and because I was a guy in a guy's world who had celebrated a system, um, I I was very proud of the fact that I had endured that as a middle-class kid that I found myself in this very old, very frankly, phallocentric, very oppressive system, and I was proud of myself for surviving it, and I celebrated that. I rather you know, enthusiastically. So I, I mean, you know, right there, I became a, 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 a leading figure in, in a very old, very oppressive system. Um, and I could hardly blame anyone for looking at me as somebody who's not going to be particularly sympathetic. Who, if they say something to me about, 
someone I know, maybe I would tell them. Stay tuned for more from my interview with Anthony Bourdain after a break. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Well, let, let me let me ask you. Um... You know, just reading Kitchen Confidential this week, you know, in, in hindsight, sort of thinking about this, which is I, you keep one thing you keep saying, which I think is really interesting, is about, you know, kind of the sexualization. And one thing I think that men in the modern workplace have hopefully tried to realize is that sexualizing things with any intent can be a very difficult thing for women. And, um, and you know, one line I, I saw in the book, I'm just going to read it to you, it's just a sentence that says, quote, we're too busy and too close, and you spend too much time together as an extended family to care about sex, gender preference, race, or national origin. And then you, you mm-hmm. follow that up and you kind of say lines like pass the fucking turkey, cocksucker, and things like that were kind yep. of common. And so I was just wondering if you thought about sort of that line and that this idea that you're not everything is sexualized, but, you know, we don't care if you're women. If, if like, yep. if in hindsight there's something kind of, you know, naive about, about, looking at the kitchen that way. Yes. I mean, I just have to talk to that and say yes. It's just interesting the way we think about our environments and we make sex jokes or we do, you know, whatever. And even if there's no intent to kind of um, sexualize things. Um, I mean, I look, I like to think, I like to think that uh, I never made, uh, like, look, there was a period of my life in the kitchen where I was an asshole. I was uh uh, I would, uh, you know, the classic throw plates on the ground, you know, uh, if waiters or waitresses for that matter displeased me, I would wail at the heavens, curse, scream. But, you know, I, I'd like to think that I never made anyone feel uncomfortable, uh, creeped out, uh, coerced, uh, sexualized in the workplace. Um, I've certainly fired people even back in the 80s for, you know, somebody uh was you know taking their personal business out on uh on a, a fellow a female employee or creeping on an employee I, I mean they were gone they were fucking gone uh I, it was just not something I could live with um I forget the question what was the question Oh no! I was just asking you about kind of sexualized atmospheres in workplaces and and also I, I think we we I, clearly we you know, what made people uncomfortable yeah. um, is something I ask. Also, um, at the time, you know, was I naive? You know, did did that level of discourse that was so familiar to me and that so many women were active participants in at the time, you know, the, right. the breed of, 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 of women back then or, or, you know, fucking tough and spoke right. like sailors. And again, I, I came out of Vassar. Where, you know, my God, I was shocked. I mean, it was like being in a locker room of a football team. I was like the only guy at the table and these women were like, you know, predators. Um, the, 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 the exchange of views was free and frank and salty. But that said, what did I miss? You know, was I naive? Uh, I'm sure I was. Of course I was. Um, well, no, I, you know, I just think about it and I, I, I put everyone in this category, including myself, that, you know, 
Um, I think we all, we would all like to pride ourselves on these environments where you say like, oh, gender doesn't matter, you know, but then yeah. um, it, in practice, you can kind of think that and, um, you know, in fact, the environment is so set by men that it does matter and we're all just not aware of it. Anyway, that's all I know. And, 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 and we are from the very get-go, you know, this system that I was, let's be honest, celebrating, okay, yeah. and bragging about surviving. And we are talking about a militaristic male system that goes back uh, in Europe, back to the guild system, uh, generally populated, uh, in a classic example, by uh, abused male children who, you know, were abused in kitchens, worked their way, you know, again in kitchens, worked their way up through this sadistic system of hazing, became chefs, and then abused those below them in the same way. The chef, the traditional system was the male chef would abuse his male chef de cuisine. The male chef de cuisine would then abuse uh, his sous chefs. The male sous chefs would take it out on all the cooks, who would then physically hit, kick, torment, haze, and pressure each other. Uh, so uh, you know, uh, as punishment for bringing the shit rain down on them yet again. And God help you if you were a woman in those days. You know, uh, there are a lot of chefs still walking around who lived, who came up through that system. Some of them, uh, you know, like I would prepare, you know, he talked about how he used to be that guy. And then one day he realized, look, you know, I'm, I'm miserable and everybody working with me is miserable, which is just not fucking working, you know, and, and took a yeah. hard look at themselves. But um, that, that the system itself, from the very beginning, right. was abusive, uh, was male-dominated. Uh, and cruel, uh, beyond imagining. I mean, you know, beatings, brandings, dunkings, hazings, uh, you were, knew Bash, right? were, were normal. Pardon? You know, Bash, you knew Bash, right? Uh, I've met him once. He was on the show for a season. And did, but you, had you heard anything about rumors before all I've this heard, stuff? No. Or? I, again, I've been out for 17 years. I mean, I'm from New York. He's in the New Orleans world. I never really, I, I wouldn't have heard anything because I just don't move in that, that I don't move in that world. Um, you know, even male, even other male chefs, you know, uh, no one would have said anything. I mean, uh, it was, uh, you know, look, I know what I read in the papers and what I read in the papers is a pretty fucking gruesome story. Yeah, it's awful. Um, were you pissed when this Master of None character who people surmised was based on you showed up last year? Um, no, 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 look, I mean, I make fun of a lot of people in my career, and I think uh, it is entirely appropriate if others uh, make fun of me. I'm friends with Aziz. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I hear it's very funny. Um, I think that I, I think I am totally fair game, and uh, I'm completely cool with it. I, I hear it was great, actually. Yeah, no, I just asked because that, that character was somewhat gross, and so that's why, even though until people were surmising it, so I was, I was just, I wondered if you were pissed about it. But if it's, it, no, you know, no, 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 no. Um, last thing, um, just because you mentioned this at the beginning about how you're interested in this more now because you're having you have a personal relationship with someone who awful things happen to. Um, is there any? I mean, I think we all kind of think in our minds, you know, oh, if we were married to or dating or we had someone in our family, something terrible happened to, we would care about it more. But has it changed just the way you, like, has it, has it raised any like specific issues about the way we think about these things or complexities that you hadn't thought of before? Um, just personally, like, 
you know, aside from caring, obviously. Look, I've seen the way that Asia uh, has been treated in her home country by the press. And it is, it, it, it is disgusting and, uh, um, and, 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 and dismaying and discouraging in, in, you know, you understand why people don't report these things. Uh, when, when, when you see what even now today, what, what people say. Uh, yeah. what they would have said on day one and what they are saying uh, all these years later when women find the strength to, 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 to be honest. Um, so I've seen that and I've really fucking seen it. And of course it, you know, it makes me angry. Yeah. And um, I, no, I just meant also, I mean, um, I, I think when you when you see these things from a distance, you kind of think, oh, if something bad happened to someone, it must be so easy for them just to report it, you know? And then you see the yeah. situation up close, and it's, it's so hard, and it's so complicated, and people feel like there's so many risks, and emotional risks, and other risks that come with it, and it's just, it's, it's pretty dispiriting and depressing. At least in my I, look, I, think, I think the yeah. thing, you know, I don't know the facts of the case or anything with the, with the Besh company, but the fact that it's a company this size and that there was no credible avenue, no trustworthy, credible office or institution uh, in this big company for uh, women to, to report uh, or to complain uh, with any confidence that, that, that their complaints would be addressed. Uh, this is, uh, uh, I mean, uh, it's an indictment of the system. Yeah. And you saw the same thing. We saw the same thing with, with um, Fox, you know, with News Corp and Roger Ailes, the way in which these women oh, are going to be the worst there. I mean, you know, yeah. in that case, the whole, the whole system is stacked against you and willing to, well, as with Weinstein, you, you know what's going to happen, or you knew what was going to happen with Weinstein. You knew that there would be lawyers. You knew that friendly press outfits would be like the New York Post would be burying you with uh, with uh, s- s- uh, slanderous, uh, disparaging information. Uh, you knew that you would be uh, blackballed. You knew that you would be mocked. Uh, you knew that your that your career in a business you worked your whole life for uh, uh, that was controlled by by that, that, that you know, the whole your entire universe of this field that you love is controlled absolutely by one man and you see his terrible reach and power to crush and silence again and again and again and the willingness of this of these massive uh deep pocketed companies uh to assist in that effort knowingly i mean let's be fair um i mean who can stand up to that uh nobody did for 20 years so uh you know, I, I think uh, we're getting a taste, uh, and I certainly saw up close, uh, maybe a little bit of what it's like to be, you know, a lone voice in a in a large group where, where you just don't feel that anyone is going to do anything but punish you for telling the truth. Yeah, uh, Tony, thanks so much for talking and taking time out of Paris or wherever you are to to talk to me. I really appreciate it. This is important, interesting stuff. Thank you. Good talk. Uh, I'll send you a link when it's up. Okay. Hope you can do some good. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to our show today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Thanks also to extra engineering help this week from James Rollins. 
If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's ASK at slate.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at iChotner. Thanks for listening.